Christianity is just kind of a product of its time and that we've somehow moved on. It's not like that at all. The people in Corinth, as a city, were, the city was extremely promiscuous, more so than 21st century Britain. And so what God said to that church was as countercultural as it is today. And in fact, what happens in this uh, passage that we read together is Paul responds to some of the slogans that the people in Corinth were using to express their view. I don't know if you were following in the Bible, but some of them were in, in inverted commas because Paul is repeating their slogans and then commenting on them. So, for example, in verse 12, he says, uh, I have the right to do anything. Or what he says, actually, is I have the right to do anything you say. This is one of their slogans. I have the right to do it. You can't tell me what to do. I have my rights. I'm not breaking any law. And Paul's response is, that may be true, but not everything is beneficial. That doesn't make it a good thing. Legality is not the only criteria by which we should judge whether something's a good thing or a bad thing. You can't stop me, may well be true, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing to be doing. The second slogan is, verse 12 again, uh, I have the right to do anything. Well, that's the same slogan. But now Paul gives a slightly different response. He says, I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, what he's saying is, you may have the right to do it, but don't give your freedom away. It's not freedom if you're pressured by your friends or your boyfriend or your girlfriend into having sex. It's not freedom if you can't control yourself, if you're addicted to porn. That's slavery. That's not freedom. Don't fool yourself. The next slogan, verse 13. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's a way of saying uh, sex for the body and the body for sex. In other words, I'm made with sexual desires. It's natural. It's instinctive. In fact, it's no more significant than eating. If I see a cake and I want a cake, I eat a cake. If I, if I see sex, if it's on offer and I want sex, I have it. What's the big fuss? Why is it any different to having a piece of cake? Why not have fun? Why should we suppress what our natural desires? That's the argument that the people in Corinth were making. And Paul's counter-slogan is, the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's what verse 13 says, literally. The body for the Lord, the Lord for the body. In other words, Jesus gave himself to save your body and now you're to give your body to his glory. And then Paul kind of expands on, really kind of sets out a Christian view of the body. The, the way we should think about, the way Christians should think about our bodies. And he says, first of all, your body is raised by God. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. In other words, your body is not a temporary thing. You're not just deciding for a moment of pleasure. Your actions have eternal consequences. And then secondly, he says, second sort of piece of this sort of way of thinking about the body is, your body is united with Christ. 
Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. If you're a Christian, then you're united to Christ. You're a representative of Christ. We're his presence in the world. In a sense, where you go, Christ goes. What you do, Christ does. And that's, that's a great privilege, isn't it? That's really exciting. But it's also very sobering. That's a great responsibility. Then thirdly, he says, your body is the home of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Just think about the Old Testament temple. If you've, if you've ever read about that or even, you know, even just sort of imagined it, what, it just, it's a place of, sort of sacredness and holiness. You wouldn't dream of having sex in the temple. But now, we are God's holy place. We are his temple. We are his home. God has consecrated us, says in verse 11. He's, he's made us holy, set us apart as his holy place. And then the other thing he says about the body is that our body has been bought by God. Verse 19, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Some people have sex because they think that they're worthless. They just think that there's no reason why they should keep themselves special or keep themselves pure. It's too late, perhaps, they feel for them. And so they just give themselves away in sex. Other people have sex or perhaps they look at porn because they want to feel worthwhile. They want to feel wanted. They want to feel respected. They want to be kind of worshipped by others. They love the idea that people offer themselves to them because they want that sense of worth. But this is how much you are worth. You are worth the blood of God's own Son. You're worth the most precious thing in the universe. And so if you're a Christian, your body doesn't belong to you. It's not yours to give away. It belongs to God because he has bought it with the price of his own son. All of that means, that all of those reasons, body raised by God, united with Christ, home of the Spirit, bought by God, all of those things add up to this. It means that what our bodies and what we do with our bodies really matters. It's not a thing of sort of passing consequence, something that really doesn't really matter. But what I also want you to notice is that sexual immorality is against yourself. I realise if you're not a Christian, all that I've just said, you might not, you not, you might not buy into any of that. You know, and being united with Christ and being a temple of the Holy Spirit just sounds a bit sort of weird. But, but let's just go with this idea that, that sexual immorality is against yourself. Verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, perhaps at first sight that looks a little bit odd. In fact, maybe this is the proof that Christians do have a bit of a hang-up about sex. Somehow, sex is sort of singled out as specially bad. Is that what 
is being said here. After all, what about drug abuse or suicide? Surely they're more obviously sins against your body. Well, I think the point that is being made here is that the, the, the Bible is talking about more than just the physical stuff that we're made of. When, he says, when, when Paul says here, when God, really speaking through Paul, says that sexual sin is a sin against yourself, he's saying it's, that, that, that it's more than just, he's talking about more than just the sort of physical bone and flesh that you're made of. By body, it means our total selves, who we are, our identity. And the key idea is this, this is really important, sex is never just sex. And really my first point to you is this, sex is more significant than you think it is. Sex is more significant than our culture thinks it is. It is not just a physical act. We've looked at it already, but verse 16 says, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. It's talking about one in body, becoming one flesh. In a sense, our whole self is involved. Your whole self is kind of given away. Your whole self, your personality, your identity is bonded to another person. And so sex is not just this sort of physical act that leaves the real you unaffected. It profoundly changes you. God designed sex as a way in, for you to give yourself to another person. You give your body to the embrace of another you enter or are entered. Your very self is fused with another person. In fact, that word unite there in verse 16 means to, to glue together. You are glued together with another person. The two become one. And that's why sexual sin is a sin against your body, against yourself, against your identity. If giving yourself to another person in sex is not done in the context of, of lifelong commitment, the result will be deep pain. It messes with you in a profound way. If any of you do any carpentry, you will know that PVA glue is stronger than wood. If you stick wood together using PVA glue and then you try and pull it apart, the glue doesn't come apart, the, the, the wood is sort of ripped apart splinters. If you unite yourself to somebody else with sex and then you pull apart, your soul splinters. Because sex binds us together with another person. But when that sexual oneness goes together with a kind of whole person, whole life oneness, the result is, is a deep sense of wholeness and fulfilment. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. It's an amazing gift from God. God has given us sex to, to bind people, to glue people together in the context of marriage. It's a sign of God's own giving of himself to us that we might be one with him. 
The Bible says marriage and sex are a picture of Christ's relationship with his people. At the cross, Christ died in love to save his people. He took the judgment we deserve to cleanse us, to make us beautiful, to make us a bride. And he commits himself to us totally. He's made a covenant with us, just like a marriage covenant, to love us and to care for us. God invented sex to show us his passion. All the pain that you have ever felt around sex or relationships, breakups, all of that pain is there to, to, as a kind of illustration of God's, the way God feels at our unfaithfulness to him. And all the joy that you've ever experienced in sex, all those wonderful romantic moments, all the pleasure that you've had in marriage are all there to show us the joy that God has in loving us in his Son. To show us his commitment to us. All the sacrifices that you've ever made in the context of marriage. All the times that you've offered forgiveness to somebody else in the context of love. All of those things are there to show us the sacrifice and grace and forgiveness and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ towards us. So God says that sex belongs in marriage not to stop us having fun, but to stop us getting hurt. It's not because sex is bad. It's certainly not because Christians are anti-sex. It is because sex is too precious and too powerful and too life-changing to be unleashed without lifelong commitment. That's a very high view of sex. It's not, sex is not just mere kind of appetite to be indulged whenever. Nor is sex somehow something that's dirty to be kind of avoided at all costs. Sex is a profound, beautiful, pleasurable, relationship-binding gift from God. So sex is more significant than you realise. But what does that mean if you're single? Well, my second point is sex is less significant than you think. So sex is more significant than you think, but also sex is less significant than you think. I hope I can make, that, make sense of that for you. I want to suggest that in our culture, sex has become, for many people, a way of salvation. So young girls want acceptance and they look for it in teenage sex. Young men want respect or power and they look for it in sexual conquests. Single people want fulfilment and they think they will find it in a life partner. Middle-aged men want life and they can feel the onset of death and so they go off and look for a younger woman so they can feel young and alive. Men want to be adored or to be in control and they look for it in the fantasy world of porn where every woman gives herself to you. We are, our world is full of people looking for, for their kind of version of salvation which might be acceptance or a power or respect and they're looking for it in sex or romance. 
to be somebody, to be whole, to be worthwhile. We're told that we need to have sex or we need to have romance. Our culture is pushing this at us. It's kind of salvation by sex. Sex gives me meaning, respect, fulfilment, identity, belonging. We want somebody to cry, yes, 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 I want you. And then the Bible comes along, and in fact, the next chapter in the Bible, from the one that we read, just, you know, page on, it says, it's good to get married, it's even better to remain single. In fact, it says it's good not to get married, because then you can have more opportunity to serve God. You can have a complete life, a whole life, a fulfilled life, without having sex. And I realise that that sounds unbelievable in our culture. The idea that someone might choose to go through life without having sex is just incredible in our culture. People can't get their head around that idea. But it was just as revolutionary in Paul's day. It wasn't any different then. In Paul's day, having a family was everything. In fact, your focus wasn't really on personal success, but on family honour. So to be unmarried was to be a no one. You weren't a man until you got married. A, A woman without children was considered cursed. But Paul is saying, not for those who are in Christ. In Christ there is a new creation, a a whole new world opens up for us. In Christ it's good to get married, in Christ it's good to be single. Why? Because sex is not the definition of a good life or a fulfilled life. Let's think about the Lord Jesus. He didn't get married and he didn't have sex. Was Was his life a lesser life? Was his life unfulfilled? Was it somehow less than human? Of course not. Some of you are desperate for a husband or a wife or for sex and maybe you think that your life is not complete without those things. Was the life of Jesus incomplete? Was it empty? We don't find salvation in sex because we are made for more than that. As we've said already in verses 13 and 14, it says that our bodies are made for God and he will raise them up. We are made for God and we are made for eternity. Now our culture has has kind of taken God out of the picture and actually also taken eternity out of the picture. And all we're left with is just some kind of temporary consciousness. You know, we'll, we'll, this is this moment in time when we're conscious of what's going on around us and then it ends. But we still want our lives to matter. And so we're desperate to find someone for whom we matter. But Paul says Christians have hope. Paul can say that life without sex is a good option because Paul has hope. We don't have to have it all in this life. We have a life to come, an eternal life to come. And Christians have God. We were made for God. Sex can't deliver, a partner can't deliver, not on that scale. Because they can't substitute for God. 
So if you're looking for sex or romance or marriage, even marriage to fulfill you, to completely, to, to satisfy you, then you will be disappointed. Mr. Right always turns out to be Mr. Wrong. Men are not God. Some of them think they are. But we're actually, we're rather sad, pompous, lazy, sinful people with bad breath. And sex is never the way it is. Not in, in reality, sex is never the way it's portrayed in the movies or in porn. Sex is not God. It can't deliver what God delivers. It can't substitute for God. Now, don't get me wrong. Sex does its job beautifully. It binds couples together in lifelong union and it does that job wonderfully. But don't make it do a job that it's not designed to do. It's significant. Sex is very significant, but it's not that significant. It's not a substitute for God. If you think sex or porn will make you accepted or offer a way of escape or make you feel powerful, then you're setting yourself up for slavery. Because they can't deliver, they won't deliver, and so you'll always be going back for more, and then for more again, and more and more, and you'll get sucked in and enslaved. Or maybe what you think you need most is a partner to get married. That will satisfy you, that will make your life complete. And the problem is that if you don't get married, that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You will live an empty life and a bitter life when all the time the fullness of God is offered to you. If, you, if, you, if your assumption is life is incomplete without sex or life is incomplete without a, a, a married partner, a spouse, then that is how you will experience life. But if you turn instead and find fullness and, and satisfaction in God, then you will be satisfied. Here's the thing though, thinking marriage and sex matter not only harms your life if you don't get married, it also harms your life if you do get married. If you think that marriage will make you complete, then you're loading a, a whole set of expectations on your poor spouse that they can never deliver. They, it means they, they can only disappoint you. No matter how great they are, because you've set them up as a substitute for God. And that's just not fair. That's too much weight to place on a marriage. Some of you may well be having problems in your relationships because you expect too much of your partner. If you're not satisfied single, then you won't be satisfied married. Because marriage cannot substitute for God. Here's a review I read of uh, a book, a recently published book, and uh, I wrote the review down because I thought it was very striking. It's not the reviewer wasn't a Christian and the book wasn't a Christian book. But it's a book called Couples, The Truth. Just sort of having a look at uh, marriage and relationships in our contemporary world. It says, this romantic ideology is pernicious, culti cultivating fabulous expectations that can only result in massive disappointment. 
as other social ties have weakened, marriage has sucked all our wishes into its orbit to the point where it's viewed as a kind of magic with this quasi-spiritual notion of a soulmate. We have been seduced by the fairy tale that we should be able to find everything we need from just one person. You should try to lower your expectations where your loved ones are concerned. Not only are they other than you think they are, but no one could ever be all good. And I think that's absolutely true. Our expectations have got out of proportion. We try and make this one person fulfil all of our longings. I think that's true except for the last phrase. No one could ever be all good. And the reality is there is someone who is all good. A soulmate who saves our souls. A loved one who gave everything for us. Only by finding completeness in Jesus can you be free to be the husband or wife that you should be a truly loving partner who loves your spouse not for what they give, give to you but so that you might give to them. And only by finding completeness in Christ can you be truly satisfied whether you're married or single. So sex is more significant than you think it is if you think of sex as just this sort of physical act. In reality, sex is this amazing gift given to sort of, so that we can give ourselves to another, so that we can be glued together with another in lifelong commitment. But sex is less significant than you think if you think of sex or romance or marriage even as something that will fill you and complete you and make you satisfied and whole. Sex cannot substitute for God. But as I end, I'm conscious that some of you have been hurt by sex. Others have caused hurt. Some of you perhaps carry scars in your heart. Perhaps scars of guilt perhaps scars of shame, perhaps the pain of betrayal. Is it too late for you? Is there still hope? Well, let me read again verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, nor uh, slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed, you were made clean, you were made right with God by calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Whatever you have done, whatever scars you carry, whatever pain, whatever hurt, whatever shame, you can be washed, you can be cleansed, you can be right with God 
through the Lord Jesus Christ.